All right, thank you very much, Bridget. If you have a Bible with you, please go ahead and open that up to Mark chapter 1. If you're a first-time guest with us, we don't care if you use a paper Bible or a digital Bible on your phone. We just want you to have a Bible. If you uh, just absolutely don't have one, there is a Bible tab over on the right. But as, as great as that is to have, get one in your hand if you can. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, lead pastor here at Foreverwood, and we're continuing on in our series through Mark. I, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever met someone famous? I really haven't. Uh, it's one of the perils, I guess, of living in Iowa. Uh, but I, I have met a couple of uh, kind of minor Christian celebrities, pastors, uh, authors. But if I, if I told you who they were, you wouldn't really be all that impressed. But I, I've heard the stories and seen the videos. You know, like the videos of the kids who meet their sports idol and they just, they can't help it. They like burst into tears as their, their you know, favorite signs and an autograph for them. I've, I've heard the stories of people meeting, you know, like famous singers and they get so awestruck that they just say really, really dumb stuff in their presence. I remember hearing a few years ago, uh, J.D. Greer, he's the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he tells the story of, as a kid, his idol was Michael Jordan. Uh, when he was nine years old living in North Carolina, Michael Jordan led the North Carolina Tar Heels to the national championship. And so, like, Michael Jordan became his favorite. And, and so he followed him all through the NBA when he was with the Chicago Bulls. And when he was 13 years old, J.D. says that Michael Jordan was playing in a golf celebrity tournament in his hometown. So he and a buddy biked up to the golf course hoping just to catch a glimpse of this amazing NBA star. Well, word came that Jordan was leaving, but he was getting in a car and was supposedly going to drive up to the main entrance to the golf course. So J.D. said he and his buddy ran there, and they waited, and sure enough, this car comes up, and there is Michael Jordan in the car. So J.D. says he and his buddy run up to the car to get my, Jordan's autograph, and his buddy, he says, J.D. says he doesn't know what's happened. All of a sudden, his buddy like shoves him and his head goes right into the window of the car. And he's like face to face with Michael Jordan. Like he, J.D. said, he was so close, he could have licked Jordan's face. Well, J.D. says that he just looks at Michael Jordan and goes, uh, hi, Mike. And Michael Jordan looks at him and says, dude, get out of my car. Now, what do you think J.D. did in that moment? He turned around and he looked at his buddy and said, he talked to me. I mean, th that's how it goes. These celebrities can, can be mean, they can be selfish, they can be arrogant, and yet we still want to be around them because they're awesome. It, it's, it's their awesomeness that we think means that we're going to get something from them. It, it could just be their attention, it could be an autograph, it, it could be a compliment, or maybe if we're really, really lucky, we'll even get some of their money. And I think deep down there's this hope and desire that if someone sees you with this person, that therefore somehow elevates your status. And who knows, maybe this will open some doors for you all because you met this famous person. Today, we're going to see Jesus begin to become famous. And as a celebrity of his day, we're going to see people kind of like the autograph seekers want to be around him. They, they, they want something from him. They want, they want to hear his teaching. They want a healing. They just want some of his attention. And what's amazing is we're going to see Jesus give some attention to the people, and yet we're also going to see him walk away from the attention. Because you see, Jesus came to earth not just to build himself a stage and get the attention of people. He came to use this stage that he's going to have to truly help and bless others. And what I hope you walk away with today 
is when you realize that Jesus has this sort of stage, but that he is in control and he has authority over all things, it will actually bring you peace. And instead of being the type of person who runs to Jesus just looking for something from him, you'll be the type of person who goes to him simply because he is God, he's in control, and that will give you peace. So as we get ready to go into Mark chapter 1, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, as I uh, teach here to a, a video camera to my church family who is watching this through their computers, uh, on their phones, Father, I pray that you just work beyond this technology and you would help us all to connect with you. Help the scriptures to come alive today and remind us, show us that Jesus is in authority over all things and so therefore we can have peace and we can rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You should have Mark open there to you. What we're going to see today is that Jesus' celebrity was not because he had a lot of money. Uh, it was not because he had these ravishing good looks. It, it wasn't because he showed a super talent in like some sport or art. His fame comes about because he displays authority. And we're going to see him display authority in four areas today. We're going to see him display authority over the scripture, over Satan, over sickness, and over the stage. And yes, I made all four start with the letter S. So therefore, you know, by default, that means it's going to be a good sermon, right? That, that's how preaching works. If it's illiterate, it, by the way, kids, that, that's not how preaching works. All right. But anyway, let's get going. The first thing we're going to see today is that Jesus has authority over the scripture. Uh, join me in Mark 1. We're going to start today in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In week one of our series, I kind of warned you that Mark moves rather quickly through his book. A number of times we see that word immediately. And last week we saw Jesus call some of the, his first disciples. Uh, we saw him call Simon and Andrew, the brothers. Simon is also known as Peter. And then he also calls James and John. Well, now the four of them start following Jesus. So now there's five. And now they go to the synagogue. And, and notice this is taking place in Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was a city on the northwest banks of the Sea of Galilee. E even though Jesus grew up in Nazareth, that's where he was kind of, well, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, but he ended up making Capernaum kind of like his home base, headquarters for his ministry. We'll see him go out to other communities and do ministry, but he seems to come back to Capernaum. And so because Capernaum's his new hometown, like a good Jew, on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue to worship. Well, because he is a rabbi, he is given the opportunity to guest teach. So he stands in front of everyone, probably reads from a scroll, and begins to explain it. And did you notice what happens? It says there that the people were astonished. I found out this week that the, he, the Greek word there, it actually means knocked out. Now, now, no, it does not mean that he became an MMA fighter and went around punching people in the jaw. It means they were so impressed, so overwhelmed, so in awe, the way we'd probably put it in our day and age, is we'd say that they were blown away. They, they could not believe what they were hearing. Why? Because they were comparing how they heard Jesus teach to the scribes that they normally heard teach. 
Now, the word scribe it would mean like someone who writes. Uh, back then, they didn't have the printing press, so these scribes would write out the, the scripture. So they would copy from one uh, a parchment onto another parchment. That way, you'd end up having two copies. So by them writing the scriptures over and over and over, they were scholars who knew these scriptures very, very well. However, they did not teach saying this is what it means. Often these scribes would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says that this means this. Or Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way. In other words, they were relying on the authority of others. But when Jesus walks into the synagogue in Capernaum, he doesn't rely on anyone else. He relies on his own authority. And it awes them. Where does this kind of authority come from? I don't think it's a mistake that in English, the word authority starts with the word author. Whenever uh, newspapers or, or journalists want to interview someone about a certain subject matter, they might go and see who's written a book about this. Because if you wrote the book, if you're the author on the subject, you are considered an expert. You have authority. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture was breathed out by God. It's inspired by him. God wrote through humans these 66 books of the Bible. All scripture was written by God, which means Jesus, as God the Son, wrote the Bible. And so that's why he has authority, because he's the author. That the scribes, it was kind of like when they would teach, they were looking at a photocopy of a photocopy without the prescriptive lenses on their face. But Jesus, when he teaches, he's got the original manuscript in his handwriting and he's looking at it with 20-20 vision. That's why Jesus had authority when he taught. He had authority over the scriptures. The second area we see is that he has authority over Satan. I'll pick it up there in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. In the Bible, uh, back, Bible background commentary of the New Testament, uh, written by uh, Craig Keener, he says that exorcisms in Jesus' day were not uncommon. However, the way they would try to exercise a demon out of someone, and by the way, kids, it's not exercise, you know, like lifting weights or running or that, it's exorcise, all right, to exercise out this demon. The methods were either to try some sort of like magical incantation to use some sort of set of words, or, and these, this one made me laugh, they tried to scare the demon out. And a couple of methods to scare the demon out of the person one was to put a smelly object underneath the nose of the possessed person, hoping that the demon would hate the smell of, you know, I don't know, someone's sandal or, you know, something else, and, and that they'd hate it, and so they'd flee the person's body. The other way to scare the demon out was to invoke the name of a higher spirit. Now, I don't know if that meant they were invoking the name of some higher demon or, or, or what it was, but they were hoping that this higher spirit would scare out the lower spirit. But Jesus does none of this. 
No magical incantation. No appealing to some other spirit. No putting smelly things in their nose. He just says, be silent and come out. And the demon obeys. When I look at this, there's a part of me that has a couple of questions. One of my questions is, why is there a demon at the synagogue? Typically, when we go to church, you, you think of these spaces of worship as a safe space. At least in my experience, that's what Christians do. They, they walk in and they pretend like they have everything together. And the people that they interact with have, have everything together. But nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we, we so often try to hide our struggles. We, we try to hide our sin. And, and I think that actually we should be taking our struggles and our sin into these spaces of worship to give them up to God. The, the reason we gather, to, whether it be through technology or when, when this is all released and we can gather together again, we come because we need to hear the gospel. We need these reminders. And so I don't think we should be looking at the story going, well, why is there a demon at the synagogue? I, I think we actually should be asking ourselves, why aren't there more people with problems and issues coming to seek God? Because I believe the church should actually be the place that welcomes them so that they too can find freedom in Jesus. The second question that uh, this leaves me with is what was so threatening about the demon's words? Why did Jesus tell him to be silent? Because to me, on the surface, for the demon to say, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. I, I, if I'd been Jesus, I'd be saying like, well, yeah, thanks for letting everyone know. That, that, that's true. Uh, several scholars and commentaries I read this week said that what the demon is trying to do is he's actually trying to undercut Jesus. Now, I don't know if it's because he points out Jesus is from Nazareth and Nazareth had such a low uh, reputation or if it's by saying that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Messiah, that it's going to cause doubt in the minds of other people. Because if this guy's acting really weird and they realize he's possessed by a demon, do you really want to believe a demon? And, and so maybe he's like undercutting Jesus and his message. Back in uh, 1988, uh, it was uh, the presidential election was between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis. Uh, Dukakis for the Democrats and Bush for the Republicans. Uh, Bush had been serving as vice president under Reagan for two terms. Now he wanted his chance to be the president. Well, like in most campaigns, things were getting really, really nasty. And in the process, Bush accused Dukakis of being a liberal. Now, in our day and age, there are some people who gladly wear the brand of liberal. I mean, they, they, they put it on their, their shirt. and I mean, they tell everyone about it. It's in their Twitter bio. They are proud to be liberal. But back in 1988... It actually wounded Dukakis' campaign. He, he at first tried to, you know, kind of work around it, and then eventually he tried to grab a hold of it and own it, but it, it was too late. The people saw this as a bad thing, and it, it ended up leading Bush to being uh, uh, elected because he'd undercut Dukakis by calling him a liberal. I think that's what the demon's trying to do here. He's trying to undercut Jesus by saying something about him that is true, and yet it might cause doubt and division in the hearts of the people listening. And so Jesus silences him and stops him because he wants the people to believe him for who he is and what he does, not because some demon has said it. Now, I don't know if the demon just wasn't thinking clearly or what. Maybe the demon thought that because Jesus was now in, in human form, he didn't have quite enough power, but Jesus clearly did. He looks at that demon and says, silence, come out of him. And the guy has to do it because Jesus has authority over the scripture and over Satan in the kingdom of darkness. 
The third area that we see Jesus have authority over is authority over sickness. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 29. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Well, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they finish up at the synagogue and they they make their way over to Simon and Andrew's house. I remember once seeing a documentary, they thought that the house was just a couple of blocks away. And so they make their way there to go enjoy a dinner together, maybe for Jesus to continue to to teach and explain things to his his new disciples. But they get to the house and and Simon's mother-in-law is feeling bad. Now, I've heard some guys joke that, great, mother-in-law's sick, let her stay in bed. I I don't want to be around her. But Simon clearly loves and respects his mother-in-law, and he's suddenly concerned. Now, I will confess that for years, I didn't see the big deal with this story. I mean, people get kind of under the weather all the time. You know, if if I get a fever, I, I just go and take some ibuprofen. It hit me this week. They didn't have modern medicine. And so a fever was usually a sign of something bad. Like, this was serious. And plus, you add into the fact that the women in in Jesus' day, they were expected to serve. And in this case, this mother-in-law would have been honored to get to serve Jesus. I mean, Jesus is now this newly famous rabbi. He's now coming into her home. He's honoring her son-in-law and his brother and these two other guys by letting them learn from him. She would find it an honor to get to serve them. But she's so sick, she's stuck in bed with a fever. This was serious. But notice, Jesus just walks over and touches her hand, and she's healed. And she gladly, with joy, gets up and begins to serve them. But then notice that word spread from what happened at the synagogue throughout town. And suddenly, people start showing up at Simon and Andrew's house. It it says there that that evening at sundown. Why sundown? Well, remember, they were in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's what you did on the Sabbath. You, you went to the synagogue to, to worship, uh, to, to learn from the scriptures. And so Jesus had been teaching on the Sabbath. Well, Sabbath was from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. If the people had gone out to, to come find Jesus during the day before the sun went down, bringing their sick, it would have been considered work. So they wait until sundown, and then they start picking up their sick kids, their, their sick elderly folks. They, they, they somehow get themselves there to Jesus because now they can work and come find him. And did you notice what Jesus did? He spends that evening healing. It says in verse 34 that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He spent the time showing he had authority over sickness himself. You've probably noticed that we're living in a world right now with a lot of sick people. Not even talking about flus and cancer and all that stuff. Just with this COVID-19 virus, uh, on Thursday, uh, globally, we hit over a million people. Uh, as you're watching this, it's, it's well over 60,000 dead. There's a lot of sick people. So if Jesus has authority over sickness, why is this happening? It doesn't mean that like Jesus only had the authority while on earth, but now that he's, he's not here, that, that he doesn't have that power anymore. 
Does it mean he just doesn't care any longer? Does it mean that maybe maybe he's now incompetent? That, you know, like the modern times have changed, that he knew how to do it back then, but he doesn't know how to do it now? Or maybe is all of this just fictional? Why are so many people sick? And why doesn't God seem to be doing something about it? We're actually going to kind of answer that in the next part, part four. I want you to see the fourth area that Jesus displays authority. And that he shows he has authority over the stage. He has authority over the stage. Now, I've already confessed that I used the word stage intentionally so that I could have four S's, but I didn't really force it too hard because it's, it's very appropriate. The people are coming to Simon and Andrew's house. They want to see this newly famous rabbi. They've heard about the miracles he's done, so they want something from him. As a celebrity, he has a metaphorical stage. Let us look and see what he does with that stage. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. In our day and age, when someone gets a stage, they're expected to seize it. Whether it be someone who performs really, really well on American Idol, and they're expected now to put out, you know, a bunch of music, new songs. Uh, if it's someone who, you know, produces a, a viral video, they're, 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 there's all this pressure to, to continue to put out more. They're supposed to seize that stage. Maybe it's uh, someone who, um, you know, did something really great and all the news stations are, are now wanting to interview them. And, and so they're supposed to seize this stage. Last fall, uh, Iowa State fan Carson King had a funny sign up that ended up being featured on College Game Day on ESPN. His sign basically just said, out of bush light, then mow me money for beer. Well, so many people thought it was funny that he ended up raising $3 million now, some of that was through a matching grant by Anheuser-Busch, and, and Venmo jumped in. A few Iowa companies also contributed. But he obviously didn't need to buy $3 million worth of beer, so he donated it. Donated it to the uh, University of Iowa Children's Hospital. He used his stage. He seized it and used it for good. Uh, on, I'm active on Twitter, and I, I noticed that whenever someone has a viral tweet, they're expected to follow that, that viral tweet up with some promotion. Things like, hey, go check out my SoundCloud, or hey, you liked that? You know, go to my YouTube channel, or hey, buy my book. Or, you know, they're supposed to somehow promote themselves. They've get, been given a stage. They're now supposed to seize it and use it. But here's Jesus. He's going viral. People are wanting his attention. He's growing in fame. And yet, what does he do? The first thing he does is he steps off the stage. We, we see him there in verse 35. He rises very early in the morning. Remember, sundown the night before, he spends hours healing people. And yet he still gets up super early and heads out where he can be alone. He steps off the stage. Too often when we find ourselves busy, we plunge into the busyness. Like, like, we, we know we should probably take a break. We need to pull away. And yet we accept this because in our culture, busyness is like value. 
It's like a crown. Like, whoa, you're so busy. You must be important. And so when the chaos comes, the craziness comes, we plunge in because maybe somehow we're going to receive more recognition and that we may complain about it. We may act really tired. We may be feeling the effects and yet we can't stay away because we want the attention. And yet Jesus gets the attention and what's the first thing he does? He steps off the stage, heads out alone, not there to get the attention of anyone else, only to get the attention of his father. But then notice he does something else. He doesn't just step off the stage. He walks away from the stage. When, when Simon, Andrew, James, and John happen to find him out in the wilderness, they're like, hey, everyone is here. They, they want you. In, in other words, what they're subtly saying is, Jesus, you have a stage. You need to seize this opportunity. Everyone wants you. So, so come on, we'll, we'll, we'll go heal some more people. We'll cast out some more demons and we'll, we'll kind of be near you and, and hang out because, you know, hey, your awesomeness will rub off on us. It'll make us look better. So come on, Jesus, you got the stage. You need to seize it. Jesus looks at him and says, you know, actually, guys, um, we're, we're going to take off. Uh, we're we're going to go to some other communities because there's other people that need to hear my message. Remember last week, we saw the message of Jesus. Mark showed us the first words that he recorded Jesus saying, and it was that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus knew he was going to go to a cross to die on the the cross for these people's sins. So he's saying, repent, repent of your sin. Believe in me. This is good news. The Messiah has finally come. And he knew these other people needed to hear it. But I want you to imagine that you're one of the people who came back that next morning. You, you didn't get to be there the night before. You hadn't heard what was going on. Now you've heard your neighbor was healed. That, that person who'd been sick for years, suddenly the demon is gone. And so you think, hey, maybe my child will be healed. So you scoop him up in that morning. You take him over and you're hanging out at Simon and Andrew's house. Where's he at? Where's this, this new Messiah, this rabbi? I want this miracle. And he doesn't show up. Does this mean he doesn't care? (laughs) Hardly. We've already seen him heal the the man in the synagogue from the demon. He's healed Simon's mother-in-law. And then he spent a whole entire evening healing people. He clearly cares. And it's that caring heart that's leading him to go to these other communities. So, So why, if he cares so much, why is he leaving? Because he is in charge of his stage. His purpose for coming to earth was not just to heal people of their physical uh, problems. It's to heal their spiritual problem. It's to heal them from their sin. And he needed to go and tell other people about it. You see, the people were demanding something from him, but it wasn't just what they wanted in that moment. He knew what they needed was something more. And so he was in the authority over his stage. And that meant he had the right and ability to step off and even walk away to go do what he knew he needed to do. So today, we've seen Jesus show authority over the scripture, over Satan, over uh, sickness, and over the stage. But we need to ask ourselves, so, so what does that mean for us? Because here we are living in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. What does any of this have to do with the days we're living in now? Well, I want to remind you of three things. The first thing I want to remind you is that Jesus is still in authority over all things. Not just these four, over all things. 
After his resurrection, in Matthew 28, Jesus calls his disciples together. 40 days after his resurrection, they're on top of a mountain, and he starts giving them his last command. He's telling them to go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all, all nations. But before he says any of that, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he still has that authority. He is still the king. He is still in control. He's still in charge. He still has authority. Which means that if he has authority over his stage, then everything he does, he does perfectly. And that is hard for us to accept sometimes. There are already reports that are coming out that there are people who have been miraculously healed from COVID-19. Now, it's quite possible that quite a few of these are just a hoax. It's people just wanting attention. Uh, some of it could be just the way the coronavirus ran its course, that, that they were deathly ill, and then all of a sudden they, their immune system worked, the virus died, and, and they were able to recover, and to everyone else it looks miraculous. But it is also possible that some of these miraculous recoveries really have been the touch of God. But why did God heal that person but let this other person die? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, why did Jesus heal the people the night before but not go back and heal the people in the morning? Why, why did Jesus in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda where all these sick people are gathered around hoping that they could get into the waters because there was a rumor that if the water stirred, you could jump in and the first person in would be healed. But when Jesus shows up, he heals one man and no one else. Why does Jesus raise the one little girl from the dead, but he allows his own cousin, John the Baptist, to be beheaded by Herod? I don't know. It's his stage. He can do with it whatever he wants. The question for you and me is, will we trust him to use his stage the right way and the only way? You see, to our human eyes, when God doesn't do what we want him to do in the way we want him to do it, we either think he doesn't love us, he doesn't care, they, maybe he's incompetent. Maybe he's absent. Maybe he's impotent. Maybe he, he's just absent. We, we don't know. We just feel like he's got it all wrong. The thing is, it's his stage. And everything he does, he does perfectly. The question is, can you trust him? Will you trust him if you get the COVID-19 virus? Will you trust him if you have it right now? Will you trust him if one of your loved ones dies because of this pandemic? He is still good, and he still is in control. This is why Isaiah in chapter 55 says that his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. You and I, we can't even see the next second. You have no idea what this afternoon holds. But Jesus he sees the beginning. He sees the end. He sees it all. He knows exactly what's going on. So can you trust him? Because he does what he does perfectly. Because it's his stage. And will you trust him, even if it feels like he stepped off that stage and walked away? Because I can promise you, and this leads to the, my third reminder, he loves you and he cares for you. Remember, he loves you and he cares for you. 
Just because God may not do exactly what you want in the way you want it and the timing you want doesn't mean he doesn't care. If a little two-year-old is crying and screaming and throwing a tantrum because mom will not give him or her the butcher knife that she's using to make supper, it doesn't mean the mom is unloving. Actually, the most loving thing to do is not give in to the kid's demands. God, because his ways are so much higher than ours, he knows so much more than us. So yes, we may want something, but we have to trust him in it. But what do you do when, when it just feels like God doesn't love you? When, when you feel like he's not good, when you feel like maybe he doesn't have enough power? I'll tell you what you do. You look to the cross and you look to the empty grave. Because when you look at the cross, you see the love of God. You realize he loved me so much that Jesus was willing to set aside his throne in heaven to come down to earth to take on human flesh. And even though he never sinned, he went and died a horrific death. He died in our place so that our sin could be forgiven, our penalty paid. And we could become free from sin, enter into the kingdom of God and have our relationship with our creator restored. And when you begin to doubt his power, you look at the empty tomb. Because Jesus himself said he's going to lay down his life, but he was also going to raise up his life. He raised himself from the dead. That is power. So when you find yourself wondering, does God care? Is he around? Does he truly love me? You look at the cross and you look at the empty tomb and you remember, yes, he does. And so because he loves you, because he cares so deeply for you, then pray. Really, I give you permission. Ask him for the healing. Ask him for the job. Ask him to reconcile that relationship. Ask him to give you a relationship. Ask him for these things. But do not come to him just like an autograph seeker, just wanting something from him. Come to him like a child, just wanting the presence of their parent. And trust in the goodness of your heavenly father who knows best. And if he gives this something to you, if he gives you the healing, all praise be to God. But if he doesn't give it to you, trust him. Don't just come to God for what you get from him. Come to him because he's God. So come. Come because he's good. Come because he loves you. Come because he's powerful. Come because he has authority over all things. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to come. To come to you in, in, in all things. To bring our, our deepest worries. To bring our sins and confess them. To bring all things to you. Because you are in authority over the scripture. You are in authority over the kingdom of darkness. You are in authority over our sickness. You are in authority over all things. So God, help us to trust you, to trust you in these trying times. Lord, I pray for anyone right now that is sick, that is, as they listen to this, that you would heal them. I know you have the power. I know it is in your nature to show mercy. I, I see it in the scriptures. I know the stories of others who've been healed in, in, these, in this life. So God, I pray that you would do it again. But at the same time, we realize that you are all knowledgeable. You see the beginning and the end. So God, help us to trust you that if you don't heal us in a certain way at a certain time, you are still good. You are still God. You still are in authority. So Father, help us to trust you. Help us to come to you. Help us to just find a peace within you. 
because you are with us and you are in control. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.